Welcome to anyone who's there. I'm hoping that there is someone there uh, to this latest Isolation Insight event. And I'm delighted that this is the next installment of what I am going to call our economics panel. Uh, you'll know the speakers well from previous events. We've got Gemma Tetlow from the Institute for Government, our own Meredith Crowley from the University of Cambridge, Ben Chu from the BBC, and Jonathan Portes from King's College and the UK and a Changing Europe. And as most of you will know, this group now comes together regularly to discuss where we've got to in terms of the economy and the impacts of COVID and Brexit. So let me kick off by saying, so where have we got to since last time we spoke in March? What has changed? What hasn't changed? What are the striking developments you might want to flag up to us? Who wants to go first with that horribly broad question? That's what I'd like to see. Uh, well, I'm happy to um, break the ice on that UK and change here. So what have we learned in, in six months? Well, I mean, I suspect Meredith in particular will may say more about this, but uh, um, uh, I think that on the trade side, my first takeaway is, um, you know, do not adjust your sets, do not adjust your models. Um, we would, what would we theoretically have expected to see based on um, economic principles and um, our modeling um, in terms of trade patterns? I think we would have expected to see a rise in trade between the UK and the EU immediately before uh, Brexit day, a very sharp fall um, as people uh, that stockpiling, a very sharp fall immediately afterwards, partly because of stockpiling, but mostly because of transitional impacts and unfamiliarity with the new processes, both among officials and traders, followed by um, some recovery as the first, uh, as people got over that, those teething processes. Um, and then more speculatively over the longer term, um, perhaps a renewed decline um, as businesses readjusted supply chains, investment decision chain and so on. And I think so far um, that curve is pretty much what the data looks like. The data is a mess, but to the extent that we can make sense of it, it seems consistent with that and sort of vaguely consistent with the sort of magnitudes we'd expect. Um, so while I think it's far too early to say that um, the sorts of trade models that, that Meredith and, and others for uh, Tom Sampson uh, um, at LSE have, have done for us in the past have, you know, are, are right. Um, what we've seen so far is certainly not inconsistent with that. So that would be my first takeaway of the impact of, of, of Brexit. Um, in terms of what we've learned uh, um, about the impact of, of COVID, um, again, um, I think, um, God, I'm saying I'm very self-satisfied here. Um, economists, or at least um, those economists, um, and, and I include myself here, who were reasonably confident about the potential for a V-shaped recovery. That's who said that, look, this is a health crisis. Um, and of course, if you shut down the economy, you're going to see a huge fall in GDP. But it's a health crisis, not a structural economic crisis. When you reopen it, you'll see a huge rebound in GDP. And with reasonably good policies, there's no particular reason to think that there's going to be significant long-term damage to the economy. Um, and to the extent that there are risks of that, we can mitigate those. Um, again, I think on that so far so good, um, the, uh, the, the estimates of long-term damage have tended to be revised down. And it's still unclear to me why there should be any significant long-term damage, except in so far 
um, as that's driven by uh, bad policies. Um, on, and then just finally, and we'll no doubt talk more about this, the sort of the interesting thing about the interaction between Brexit and COVID for me, obviously, is on what's happening to migration patterns and the impact on the labor market. Um, and here we clearly are seeing very significant mismatches. Um, and I think that's not surprising. You shut down a large section of the economy. That's a big demand shock. Um, you then have lots of the people who work in those sections of the economy leaving the country. That's a big labor supply shock. You then reopen those sections of the economy and you have the, uh, a reverse labor demand shock. Well, of course, um, you're going to have some big mismatches, um, shortages, wrong people in the wrong place for the wrong jobs, as it were. Um, I'm not sure that as yet that tells us very much about the long-term impact, since I think those mismatches will work themselves out. There will be long-term impacts on both labor demand and labor supply from Brexit and COVID, um, but it's too early to say uh, how those will material, how those will, will impact the shape of the labor market over the medium to long-term, but perhaps we can talk about that. That's probably enough for me as an introduction. Well, that's great. I might Actually, Meredith, I might come to you next, but before I do, uh, Ben and Gemma, I mean, if you could just ponder this, I mean, Jonathan says we haven't got a, a structural economic crisis going on, but I wonder whether as a result of working from home and so on, we might be facing structural economic change and whether actually the impacts of that might not be the same as an economic crisis, but might be quite profound anyway in the short term, just in terms of the upheaval that might cause, you know, I'm thinking city centre shops or whatever. So that's something we should talk about. But Meredith, on the, on the sort of trade related points that Jonathan made, have you got uh, anything to to add to that, or can you expand on what you were saying? Sure, so I'll, I'll, I'll focus in on expanding on, just Jonathan made this comment about the data is a mess. And I think one of the questions we would like to know the answer to is, if we hadn't had Brexit and if we hadn't had COVID, how much trade would we now be seeing? And how can we compare data from before, say January, to data in March? And so Jonathan, I think very nicely explained the trend before January, we had this buildup of inventory on both sides of the channel where people were worried about being able to trade. So you had a big surge in the quarter before Christmas, even with COVID. And then after you had this immediate fall because all the firms that had stored up parts that they needed didn't need to trade as much. And now we're starting to get this bounce, this kind of gradual um, rebuilding. But I think one of the points is actually that um, there's been this confusion or a kind of bit of a problem in that on the UK side, the export levels have been reported higher than on the EU side, the import levels from the UK have been lower. And so there's a question of what's going on with this mismatch. So I'll just briefly say a little bit about boring trade statistics. Under the United Nations, there's rules about how you record imports and exports. And generally, when you send something out of your country, you know, and you export it, um, you can, uh, that would be recorded as a dispatch from your country. When you import something, you know where the stuff was made and you also know the last legal owner of the merchandise. And when you import something, most countries will record both pieces of information. They'll record where the, the goods were dispatched from and that indicates who the last legal owner was. And they'll also record where the stuff was made. So for example, if I'm in Germany, and I wanna buy a car that was made in the United States, but for some reason the manufacturer sold the car to someone in Canada and it was shipped through Canada, 
Germany would record that as an import originating from the United States, but they would also record that it was dispatched from Canada. And strangely enough, the UN says you can report your basic headline numbers about where you're importing stuff from, either on the dispatch basis, which is who was the last legal owner and in which country did they reside, or the origin, which is where was the stuff made. And within the EU, the trade statistics, all countries report where was the stuff in my country dispatched from? So who was the legal owner? Not necessarily where it was made. That's the sort of headline number they push out. But when they report court stuff from outside the EU, they report where was the merchandise made? And so with the UK, some of the stuff that the EU previously had been reporting as coming into other European Union member states from the UK was stuff that was legally owned by someone in the UK. So some corporate, you know, person could have imported something from Canada, whatever. Nowadays, because the UK is now outside, they're only reporting imports from the UK if the good was made in the UK. And so this means that stuff that used to come in to Europe from the UK was sometimes not made in the UK. It just happened to have had a period of time being owned by someone in the UK. So the sort of a long, boring story, but basically because of the change in the UK status, they stopped reporting stuff being dispatched from the UK in the EU. They're now only reporting stuff made in the UK and that causes a big level fall in imports into the EU from the UK. The UK, on the other hand, when you report exports, you just, anything in your country that's been going somewhere else, you just report it as exports. So the UK series is consistent over time, but some of the stuff being exported wasn't necessarily made here. So that's what ONS believes is causing this big discrepancy. And so the, the downside is if we wanted to know the answer to the question of what would trade have been, it's a little bit tricky to um, figure it out. Probably the question we want to know the answer to is how much has there been a decline in stuff made in the UK sent to Europe? And we can't quite get at that from the way the, the statistics are put together. But I think overall, you know, we're looking at um, with Brexit overall, all the barriers seem to be slowing things down, although there's been a bounce back from the immediate um, change in policy and the change in the border on in January. So, I mean, the one thing I can guarantee you, the audience, is that you'll come away from this with a very, very granular knowledge of what we don't know or can't know at the moment, which is something I suppose. Uh, just to say, please do keep voting for the questions you want me to pose. I don't think, hand on heart, we're going to get into the questions about the Northern Ireland Protocol today. But if you keep your eye on your web, our website, there'll be a couple of things later on on the command paper yesterday and its implications. Uh, Gemma, over to you. Great. You can remember the um, question now. <laughs> um, so I mean, I very much agree with Jonathan's uh, take on the sort of big picture on trade and the economic recovery. Um, so just to, to add a few things to that, I think when we were last talking back in March, although there were quite a lot of economists who were sort of optimistic about the V-shaped recovery, um, I think at that point we were still in the relatively early stages of the vaccine rollout, there was still a lot more uncertainty at that point about quite how rapidly we would be getting back. So I think we are now in a position where most economic forecasts have been revised up and look more positive for later this year and into next year than I think they were in March. Um, so a faster recovery um, than many people were expecting a few months ago. 
Um, and as Jonathan suggested, I think a little bit more confidence that the permanent damage from the from COVID may be smaller than was previously expected. Um, and that has implications, which perhaps we can go into later about sort of what's the fiscal outlook for the government? How difficult is it going to be to get um, borrowing down over the coming years? And that looks a bit easier for the government than it did um, back in March. Um, and that sort of stronger economic recovery is reflected in there's been a lot more debate in recent months about inflation uh, rising above the 2% target. Should we worry about overheating? Should we be needing to start to think about withdrawing monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, which I don't think we were was really a topic of conversation back in March. Um, some of that is a quite a US debate that's sort of um, echoing here, um, I think perhaps less concern that um, fiscal stimulus in the UK is quite as large as the fiscal stimulus that's going on. So sorry for non-economists. So um, government pumping a lot of money into the economy in the US, um, which is leading to concerns about that overheating the economy there. Some of those discussions are happening here as well, but the government isn't doing as much here to keep pumping money into the economy as some of what's planned in the US. Um, but I think some of what hasn't changed and perhaps means that we still don't know exactly what's going to happen in future. So on, on the trade side, we still don't have in place all the full checks that are going to be needed on exports, particularly imports from the EU in the kind of the end state planned for Brexit. And the introduction of some of those checks has been pushed back um, to give more time um, for traders to get used to those. So we still, we're still not seeing the full impact of the potential end state for Brexit on trade. Um, and in terms of uh, COVID and government support for the economy, most of the government uh, support programmes are still in place. So we still have people um, whose wages are being paid through the furlough programme until the end of September. So in terms of the wider economic picture, we don't we're not yet seeing the potential full impacts of job losses um, from COVID because we still have a lot of government support in place. And that's, I think, one thing that will play out over the autumn is what happens as you start to withdraw government support. Brilliant. Thank you. Ben, I know you've got things to say about uh, inflation. I wonder if also, I don't, I don't know if you want to touch on this, but whether there is a spectrum of significantly high levels of unemployment need to be worrying about when furlough is fully withdrawn or not. But anyway. Over to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I just to pick up on just what Emma, um, uh, Gemma was saying, uh, those import checks are still to come. You speak to businesses as I have, and they are manufacturing in particular are flagging those as a real danger. And, you know, when you look at the trade figures, imports uh, have done much worse than exports, which was not expected. I used goods exports to the EU and goods imports from the EU. So that is a real uh, worry in business. I think something to keep a very clear eye on because they, they sort of kick the can down the road on these import checks and i don't think they can keep doing that forever maybe they can but i don't think they can. um you asked an interesting question Anand, about um you know the sector you know big structural shifts and the implications of them i mean i have to add it i'm afraid to the list of things we just don't know the answer to but you know linking it to what em, uh, Gemma was saying it's key you know there's about two million people or so on furlough are they going to have jobs to go back to or are they going to have to be to find different uh, jobs. The, re the reintegration of that large chunk of the labour force is, I know one of the key things that the Bank of England is looking at and is concerned about and will affect their, their views about the right level of uh, support for the economy. Just going back to um, the big picture, I mean, yes, absolutely, Jonathan and, and Gemma are right. You know, when we met in March, uh, what was what's happened since then has exceeded expectations. The 
the first quarter dip was not as big as expected, so that's good news. But I have to say, uh, and, and all the implications of that for uh, for the wider economy are, are obvious, but doubts have crept in, I think. I've sensed amongst uh, economists and uh, forecasters in recent weeks because of the continued uh, um, restrictions, because of the uh, restrictions on travel uh, because of the general concern about the explosion of cases that we're having, if not hospitalizations. I think people have been shaving down their, their predictions of growth. Um, this question of scarring, I agree with Jonathan that there's no particular reason why we should assume there will be a large level of scarring and all the implications that will have for the public finances. But I don't think it's a done deal that there will be, by any means, that there will be no scarring coming out of this. Notice that the IFS working with City uh, just this week said that they still think um, on their forecast that there will still be about 3% of GDP scarring, um, which is in line with what the OBR was uh, projecting back in March. Um, I suspect it probably won't be as big as that, but I, you know, if there is still scarring, that re reduces obviously uh, the tax take and it reduces the fiscal uh, freedom of maneuver for their chancellor. So we'll see what the OBR says in the spending review when it's next forecast for scarring are due but that, that's a that's a key uh, that's a key key consideration I think and a key unknown at the moment okay and did you want to add something about the dangers of inflation that Gemma touched on yeah I mean I suppose that we can link it to what we've been saying is that I think when we met in March the uh, the price of UK and US bonds were were falling quite dramatically and a lot of economists were saying look this is an indication that markets are starting to price in uh, a, a dangerous inflationary spike. I'll note that since then, um, they, they've come down quite a lot. So the markets are still not expecting um, a surge of inflation, which is interesting because a lot of economists have gone the other way and they're sort of saying, well, we think because the prints are coming in um, higher than expected. So the market's going one way, economists are going the other way on inflation. I mean, my, my view, um, which is sort of reflected in other places as well, is that to have a one-off surge of price rises is probably likely, and is, is in fact happening. But to get the kind of damaging inflationary spiral, we'd really need the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank to sort of change their regime, i.e. to be subject to political pressure to not uh, tamp down on inflation in the way that they are mandated to. I personally can't see that happening, so I'm relatively relaxed, and I agree with the Bank of England's analysis on, a whole, on the whole that um, in, inflation will be temporary. But obviously, yes, that, that debate has become a lot more heated since we last spoke. And I suppose, I mean, firstly, I suppose, I mean, Jonathan, are you, are you sticking with, with a V then? And you're not turning your V into a tick, which I suppose is an attenuated V. Uh... Oh, you're, you're muted, I think. Um, sorry, I mean, I think by V, um, what um, I and others meant was basically that uh, um, when restrictions came off, we would see a fairly quick back, bounce back to the previous levels of activity. So obviously uh, um, you know, what we in fact saw was a W because we had restrictions on, then off, then on again and off. But that, all that's consistent with, with the basic principle of the V, which is that it's only the restrictions which are keeping us down. Um, and I still, I, I think I would still stick with that rather than a tick. Maybe it'll be delayed a little by this current uh, um, issue of people being off work, but that strikes me as a eminently 
um, temporary and transitory phenomenon in, in economic terms. So yes, I am still sticking with the V. I did, I thought that the IFS stuff uh, earlier this week was um, astonishingly, um, you know, not just poorly argued, but not argued at all. I don't know what uh, um, Ben and, and, and Gemma, who probably read it as well, thought, but the justification for this view that permanent scarring was going to be uh, um, as high or higher than what the OBR thought earlier seemed to be to be entirely absent. Um, I don't know, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't even finger in the air stuff. Uh, I don't know why they thought that was publishable. Uh, sorry, I'm being very rude. Does anyone want to disagree with me on that? Want to I, I mean, I just say it, it's not, it's, in fairness to the IFS, it's they're plugging in the projections from City into their modeling uh, and sort of going with that because they don't do forecasting so i um but I, I to be honest i haven't read it in full detail so jonathan may well be right and it does seem to be relatively pessimistic relative to a lot of other uh, analysts about the degree of scarring but there you go and just just moving on to something else that i mean lots of people talk about i mean have we reached the point now where we really have to start worrying about levels of government debt and borrowing and that this is something we need to start thinking about addressing as yet. I mean, some people seem to think we can be very, very relaxed about this still. Uh, but is it is this casting a bit of a shadow over the horizon, do we think, in terms of the economic outlook? I mean, Gemma, you talked earlier about the fiscal outlook perhaps being a bit rosier than we might have feared at one point. Is, is that the case? So I think to where you started the question on the do we need to worry about the level of debt? Um, I think what we've kind of learned in the last year or so is that we you probably have to worry less about that in terms of markets willingness to keep loaning to you if all other countries are in pretty much the same position um so i think as long, while the uk doesn't look like an outlier from other countries in terms of its level of debt um that's probably not such a concern um but uh ultimately there comes a point that the uk government can sort of uh for a year or two, borrow at sort of 14% or whatever we borrowed um, last year of GDP. Uh, it can't do that every year forevermore. So clearly, well, my, my view is that we do need, the government does need to be thinking about how do you reduce borrowing in future years. There's a debate to be had about exactly how much debt can they sustain and um, exactly how much borrowing can you have each year. But if you're in a position where debt is ratcheting up year on year uh, relative to the size of your economy, that seems unsustainable in the longer term. So there is a, a point, uh, perhaps around the sort of 3% of GDP um, uh, uh, target that the government was effectively aiming for pre-pandemic that is consistent with the UK not having ever rising levels of debt. Um, I mean, one thing that the OBR pointed out in their fiscal risks report a couple of weeks ago was the, the tendency that uh, governments rack up extra debt in crises and then don't do much to pay it down in better times and pointing to the need for greater um, sort of room for manoeuvre in the public finances to guard against or to sort of leave yourself in a position where you can actually respond to major crises of the sort that we've seen in the last year or so. Um, that argument sort of line of argument seems reasonably persuasive and if you go with that then that would suggest that the government should be getting trying to reduce levels of debt in in good times perhaps a bit more than you might have thought if you if you believed otherwise that the risks are kind of more symmetric the tendency seems 
the tendency is when you get good shocks, governments don't run down debt levels. Um, but when you get bad shocks, they do ratchet them up. Um, so the OBR's argument would be in favour of paying off, sort of paying down some of that debt a bit more in good times. Um, like the If there is permanent scarring, that sort of makes the, the fiscal problems for the government that bit harder. Mm. But I think it's worth saying that actually the UK government already faced some pretty tough fiscal challenges looking forward anyway to pay for healthcare, to pay for an improved social care system. Um, all of those pressures were there pre-pandemic and remain there. So I think many of the difficult choices that the government is going to face um, over the next few years are not really about how do we pay back the debt that we've run up because of COVID, but more just that um, we're in a position where the, UK, the kind of current structure of the UK tax system doesn't really generate enough revenue to pay for the kind of quality and scope of public services and welfare system that the UK public seems to want and that the government is increasingly sort of offering the UK public. So I think it's that mismatch that the government's really got to deal with. I'm going to disagree a bit with Gemma here. I mean, I think Gemma is saying exactly what I would have said um, 10 years ago in the first austerity program, um, which is that uh, austerity, we didn't need to get panic about debt. Um, austerity was in the short term was a bad idea, but over time we needed to consolidate and get our debt onto a downward track and prepare for the next crisis. Um, I think if we've learned any, uh, uh, you know, um, now, I think I was right about austerity then, but I think I was wrong, actually, and others of us were wrong, you know, on, on, on the other side, actually, we were too uh, um, uh, cautious over the medium to long term. Um, what Gemma described, this concept of fiscal space that we need to build up for the next crisis, that was talked a lot about in the sort of middle period after the first impact of austerity, but before this crisis, yes, we needed to build up space for the next crisis, the IMF and other produced lots of models and spreadsheets um, explaining why this was necessary, why we didn't have enough, quote, fiscal space, unquote, what the realistic limits were, all, all based on what looked like plausible assumptions and models. Well, guess what? We just had this crisis and it turned out to be absolute nonsense, right? We blew through those limits completely and, uh, and absolutely um, within months of, the, uh, uh, of this pandemic. And it turned out those limits simply did not exist in the way that, that we thought. Um, so I think we should be very cautious about this rhetoric about building up ammunition for the, for the next crisis. The second thing I'd like to say is that, to my mind, the risks, and I know Ben has written on this, this too, the risks are much more that we, um, uh, that, that by sort of having this concept of what a um, sustainable fiscal position looks like and trying to get to it, we actually make the position more less sustainable because we artificially constrain the uh, the growth of the economy by reducing demand so much that actually supply adjusts to meet um, this lower demand, which I think at least in part is what we've seen over the last 10 years, that part of the, the low productivity growth um, um, and low supply capacity of the economy over the last 10 years was actually driven by mistakes on the demand side. Um, I'll just redress the balance by saying, I mean, I, I do still agree with what Gemma said about this sort of mismatch between what the UK public wants to pay for um, and uh, what they want in terms of public services. Um, that is true. That is an issue. Um, 
I, I would broaden to say sort of pay for here just means, you know, the sort of level of resources in the whole economy, what we produce and how it's distributed between public um, and private consumption is more to my mind an issue than, than the precise timing of, of and methodology method by which it's paid through taxes or private insurance or all the rest of it. It's just a sort of get aligning our expectations with what we actually produce is, is more of an issue than than the sort of uh, fiscal aggregates from year to year. Gemma, I'll let you come back if you want in a second. Meredith, I'm going to let you come in first. And Ben, I haven't forgotten that you're there. But just this, this notion of fiscal space, I suppose, the assumption wasn't then that the crisis would be global, I suppose. I mean, going back to what Gemma said before, is like if everyone's doing it, there might be more space to get away with it. I mean, surely the, the, the issue then is whether the sort of the next crisis is a national one or a global one. And if it's national, then borrowing is not quite as easy as if everyone's having, is everyone's forced into the same place. No, that's not um, really what I've so, so I'll just, I'll just say, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Anand, and I was going to sort of restate exactly what Gemma said, which is, it's actually been easy to borrow in the last two years, precisely because everyone's in the same boat. And worldwide crisis, it was easier. And it was also, I think, seen by many as quite necessary that we have this furlough and that we pay people to stay home precisely so we could you know, address the health crisis and then get back to a normal economy. But I think one of the things um, where Jem is talking about, we need fiscal space. I agree with Jonathan, Jonathan that austerity was a mistake. We went too far after 2008 around the world, you know, but especially in the UK to bring those government debt levels down. And it went too far and it basically took away what people I think both wanted and needed. It may have affected productivity in a negative way. One thing that's changed actually in the last six months and since we met is this agreement in principle among the G7 and then the G20 to establish minimum corporate tax rates. Because I think one of the areas in which we haven't had a lot of room in terms of having fiscal space was back in 2008, if you had a high debt level, many governments felt the only way to bring that down was to cut government services rather than raise taxes. And the reason they couldn't raise taxes was because if they raised taxes, firms' economic activity would leave the UK for Ireland, the Netherlands, some other low tax jurisdiction. And so now one of the things, at least with the US, Germany, France, the UK, all agreeing in principle that we need to establish a global minimum corporate tax rate, that decreases the incentive for firms to move if one particular country raises the taxes just a little bit. And so in terms of bringing debt down, there's a little bit more space in theory going forward to bring that debt down through increased taxes rather than through cuts to public services. And so I think in some sense, there's, there's a little bit more room there. And I think that might in the longer run be a bit better um, because in some sense, there's some public services that we need to have if you wanna have a productive economy, you need to fund education at a high level. Mm -hmm. And you can't cut education to pay down the debt, you know, it's the same young people. You want those people well-educated and well-skilled so that they earn a lot of money so that when they're adults, they can pay down that debt. So I think having a little bit more space to fund those public services and bring down the debt through higher taxes rather than through a cut of essential services um, leaves many countries in a better position. So I hope that that's um, going forward, it will be a more positive position for the economy overall.
There is, of course, the slight irritant of having promised not to raise taxes in your manifesto, but let's leave that to one side. Uh, that, that's a short term thing, though, yeah, right? There could yeah. be another manifesto in a year or two and you can we don't need to solve it immediately. We can have a little room to do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Gemma, did you want to come back at all on what Jonathan was saying? Let's all pick on Jonathan. No, actually, I don't fundamentally um, disagree with uh, Jonathan Meredith. I think the this is a difficult. I, I, the more important thing I, to me seems to be the sort of what what are we paying for publicly and what are we raising through the tax system each year? Um, where the is there a debt ceiling? Um, seems to me, I actually tend to agree with Jonathan. Not a particularly helpful um, conversation to have on that front. I, I guess to sort of. I think the thing that Jonathan and Meredith are getting in their comments, which I definitely do agree with, is that it actually really depends on the micro details of public policy. There are there are things that the government spends money on that really do support economic growth. Um, and that's a good thing. There are ways that you can tax that are more or less harmful to economic growth. And actually, it's all those micro details as much as the headline number for borrowing and debt that really matter, really kind of determine what's fiscally sustainable. Ben, sorry, I've been I've come to you for ages. Sorry. No worries. Yeah. Well, just to weigh in a little bit on this fiscal space question, I think that the the the, the uh, a calculation that people are citing from the OBR and its fiscal risks and various other publications is that one percent on rates would lead to about one uh, percent extra borrowing costs, so about twenty billion. Um, that's not nothing, of course, but obviously it depends what else is going on in the economy. What's driving that rise in interest rates? If it's because the economy is growing faster than expected, then we can be relatively relaxed. If it's because inflation is getting out of hand, on the other hand, and the, the, the you know uh, growth is not picking up, then that's that's obviously a worry. So it's it's contingent, and that sort of brings me to the the second part, which is I was really striking that this. Since March, it seems to me, there's been very little talk about macroeconomic management. And obviously, this is directly related to these questions of fiscal sustainability because it's that deficit as a share of GDP. So the government can affect what happens to GDP through um, through its uh, various stimulus uh, mechanisms and levers that it has. And there's been very little talk about that. You know, in America, there's been this whole uh, stimulus and talk about what America did. But we seem to be not talking about it here in the UK, which I find a bit a bit um, striking, possibly a bit worrying. I mean, we talk about fiscal maneuvers, but it's in the context of helping particular sectors, providing support. We don't tend to talk about it in terms of making sure we have a high pressure economy, having high demand. And there's obviously reasons for that because it seems the economy is has been recovering pretty strongly without extra support. But I think that conversation should be in there to some extent. Um, because I fundamentally agree with Jonathan, there's no reason to expect or to anticipate there will be a large amount of scarring from this. But if we don't have an eye on making sure that doesn't happen from a policy perspective, we might end up with it anyway. And that will have knock on implications for the size of the economy, the growth rate of the economy and all these questions about fiscal sustainability. So we shouldn't lose sight of the macro uh, policy element of these discussions, I think. Which kind of, I think, brings us to Peter Williamson's. Actually, Jonathan, I cut you off uh, when you were about to tell me why I was wrong. If you want to do that still, then you can. But if not, that's fine. You're you're muted. Yeah. No. I, I mean, I I I, um, I I agree in part that you know perhaps there is a question of of uh, uh, we can borrow because other countries are doing the same thing. But fundamentally, actually, it it the reason we can borrow um, goes back. 
uh, isn't, I don't think, about international comparisons or international flows. It's just the back to the old Keynesian question of the balance of, of savings and investment. We can borrow because the private sector is saving a lot. The private sector wants to save a lot and it's saving, and, and to some extent that's forced saving because of restrictions. A lot of that is just going to unwind automatically. Um, now it's true that's happening everywhere, um, but it's all actually fundamentally a domestic phenomenon. We've had a huge rise in the UK household and to some extent corporate, but mostly household saving ratio. That money has to go somewhere. It's going into government, going into the government deficit. Um, it's, it's in that sense, it's purely accounting um, and not something to in itself uh, worry about directly. And, and, and we, you know, some ways where a lot of what you see in the media is just sort of thinking about this, this question in the wrong way. Um, what really happening is a very sharp, large rise in household saving driven by um, both on both from a demand and supply point of view, um, the uh, the health crisis and that and, and and what we're seeing in the public finances is sort of a reflection of that. It's not a cause in itself of anything very much. Just, I mean, thank you. Just just going back to what sort of the note that Ben uh, ended on. I mean, this question from Peter Williamson is about whether or not, sort of through all the all the clouds, we can discern the outline of a government economic strategy? Do we know what this government stands for when it comes to management of the economy? I mean, you talked about an approach to the macroeconomy. Can we, can we see an approach to the macroeconomy or is this all very much seat of the pants because we're in the middle of a crisis and we're gonna to have to wait a while before we figure out where their priorities lie? Or is that a really unfair question to ask any of you? Well, Eric. I think that, I think there's a clearly a sorry. There's a there's clearly a battle going on between uh, the chancellor and the prime minister about what that economic strategy should be. Uh, we know that Rishi Sunak is very very concerned and determined to get hold on public spending uh, because he simply feels that having, you know, opened the taps so comprehensively over the last year and rightly so from a macroeconomic policy perspective that it's it sort of he'll never be able to turn them off. So he's, it seems to me that number 10 is basically, number 11, uh, the Chancellor is saying no to pretty much everything at the moment as a point of principle, just to get across the message that uh, it's, he's not a soft touch. Um, so I, I think it's really driven by those old kind of treasury, we must control public spending rather than any sort of macroeconomic, as I was saying, policy, uh, macroeconomic demand management uh, philosophy or, or, or approach. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that's where the politics are. I don't, I don't really sense a, a kind of a, a more overarching uh, anything more than that, to be honest, at the moment. So I suppose perhaps with the, the difference that, you know, as maybe yesterday's announcement on NHS pay revealed, he's, he might say no, but he sometimes might get ignored. But uh, Gemma, did you, oh, Meredith, sorry, you already had that first and then Gemma. Sorry, so I was going to say, I think, from the start, there's been this discussion of what's the Brexit dividend, what's going to happen post-Brexit in terms of economic policy, and how are we going to have this entirely beautiful new economy. And to me, there's the strategy has always been rather vague and not quite precise. And we hear bits and pieces of how they think there can be some great new economic policy that will really grow the economy. One of them, you know, historically has been they've talked about free ports. And I think I find it strange that the whole idea of free ports is you're gonna create per certain parts of the United Kingdom, like towns or something around a port, and you're gonna have a very low tax jurisdiction there. 
and you were going to basically allow, you know, a huge amount of services production and you weren't going to tax it. And so this is a little bit at odds with the whole agreement in principle with the rest of the world to establish minimum tax rates. So once you've agreed to not have a minimum tax rate, that sort of upends most of the potential benefit. I think that there was a plan to get around free ports. So we're throwing the free ports idea. I, at some level, you can still have, you know, reduce import tariffs, but this is trivial. And so I think the big benefit was going to be coming from having a sort of special tax jurisdiction. But if you agree to have minimum taxes, you don't have that anymore. So that idea, which maybe was also supposed to help with leveling up, I think has been discarded and nobody's talking about it because they just don't want to admit that they've discarded it. I think the other thing maybe in terms of economic policy is there's been a bit of this strategy since the very beginning of the referendum, pre-referendum, that if we left the European Union, there could be all of these wonderful new agreements to trade in services. And once we trade in services, this can be the source of growth for the economy. And it's not clear to me what's going on there. So if you look at the agreement in principle with Australia, there is a services component that's quite sizable. You're not going to ship a lot of goods to Australia ever. So you're never going to have a huge trade growth on the on the manufactured goods side or agricultural goods side, but maybe there was some scope for business services, consulting, et cetera. So that potentially is part of the strategy. But I think in terms of this economic policy, it's we've never had a clear, broad, visionary program. So Ben's alluded to the fact that we don't have a super clear view of what's happening macroeconomically, but in terms of economic growth, industrial policy, it's been a little bit inconsistent and that there's an announcement of this is what we're going to pursue and then there's a limited amount of follow-through so i think this is what i see with the free ports with the trade and services agreement there's an agreement in principle but i think there's going to be a lot of pushback in the uk because of all the agricultural freedom um, in trading with australia so there's going to be some objection there and so it's not clear if this agreement will entirely be able to go through in the uk Gemma, were you wanting to come in Yes, um, I, I think um, it is quite hard to discern what this government's economic strategy is. Um, I, they don't seem to have a sort of clear statement of how can government set the conditions or most effectively influence economic growth. That's sort of that there doesn't seem to be that kind of underpinning theory that's guiding what they're doing. Um, a couple of things that you can discern from what they've said so far is this does seem to be a much more interventionist government than previous conservative governments. They seem to want to be actively doing a lot more, having a lot more input into what business does than previous conservative governments are. So it's perhaps less of the previous conservative um, theory of let's set the right conditions, let's have good regulations, um, good tax environment, and then let the private sector um, do what it does. So it seems to be more interventionist than that. Um, they also seem to be um, in, more in favour of kind of promoting manufacturing and high tech and science industries. Um, there's, that's a lot of what the rhetoric is that comes from Boris Johnson and the sort of the new ARPA equivalent um, funding mm -hmm. for high tech um, innovation. Um, that seems to me a bit a bit dangerous for for a country that is, as Meredith said, largely services based. Um, even if some of those services are not 
immensely high productivity, actually boosting the productivity of our large services sector even a bit does a lot more for you um, than creating a few jobs in the manufacturing sector or creating quite a small high-tech science sector. That can only be part of the answer to boosting growth across the UK. So I think they seem to be biased in that direction, but that doesn't seem like enough of an answer to a kind of UK-wide economic strategy. I mean, Meredith touched on this issue of sort of economic opportunities coming out of uh, Brexit. And I'd remind you all that there is a job going as director of Brexit opportunities in the Cabinet Office, so you can identify those uh, opportunities for us. But the third leg, I mean, so you mentioned free ports, you mentioned trade, trade deals. The, the third leg of that is regulation, uh, which David Frost himself certainly seemed to put a lot of emphasis on. I mean, how... How realistic do you think it is that there is scope for a new approach to regulation that will sort of unlock untapped potential in the UK economy, maybe increase productivity? It strikes me that's a lot more likely in new sectors than old sectors, the sort of sort of high tech areas that Gemma was talking about. But what do you think? Is, 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 there, is there useful stuff that can be done there? Is there anything specific you can think of? I mean, one quite specific point is the, the new reg, uh, legislation around state aid. So this is mm -hmm. government subsidies to businesses. That does seem an area where the previous EU system, I think people on across the EU would acknowledge it was relatively, is relatively burdensome um, and potentially is therefore scope for the UK government to put in place a system that's better suited to the specific needs of the UK um, and that perhaps is a little bit easier to navigate. Um, I've not seen any sort of anyone attempt to put numbers on what what sort of boost that would provide, but that, that clearly is one area where there's there is scope. Ben, is there anything? I'm sorry, you're you're the only one of the panelists who's on the top line of my Zoom screen, which is I think why I keep coming to you last. I'm sorry about that. That's no worries. No, well, I mean the question about regulation is always a trade-off, isn't it? You can you can um, you can deregulate, but that has consequences. Um, I don't know, you could look at things like vaccines. Maybe they'll take the example of what happened over vaccines and think maybe we can afford it's the scope to do more there. But then you've got the issues of safety as well. And if you want to sell these vaccines abroad, you know, there's a there's a trade-off. I mean, the Chancellor has looked at uh, making it easier for um shell companies to list on UK markets, right? I mean, that's an example of something that perhaps might not have been possible. Uh, under the uh, EU regime, and they can sort of go go into that. But okay, fine. You get more you get more money coming into London stock market. But it also the issue of SPACs is that they offer less protection for for investors because of the lower disclosure requirements. So it's a trade off. There are things they can do. They may be right and they may be wrong. But it's important to recognise that it's not a panacea. Saying deregulate or lower regulation or change regulation is all very well, and there may be benefits, but there are also uh, uh, costs as well, and you need, we need to be uh, upfront about that. I mean, I, I, what, just one point about the subsidy regime. It is ironic how little attention it got, given that level, uh, the, the level playing field was such a key, um, you know, debating point and obstruction to reaching a trade deal. When it came in, I mean, I, I defer to uh, Gemma, Meredith and Jonathan, but it seemed to me that it was relatively sensible, um, and certainly that was the reaction. So I was surprised by that, you know, given how much it was uh, uh, seemed to be uh, a bar to getting the uh, trade deal over the line. Yeah, I mean, the other irony, of course, is that one of the bars to the trade deal getting over the line is the UK government wanted to reserve the right to become more German once we'd left the uh, European Union than we had been before. But uh, Meredith. 
So I just want to make a point about regulation. So on the one hand, we have Brexit, which means we have more freedom to set regulation as we like. But at the other hand, the government has stated its own climate goals. And so a lot of the regulation that we can look at maybe coming online over the next 10 years is going to be about how are you going to hit carbon targets and what guidelines are the government going to want to have about energy use. And so in some ways, it's a little bit you know, they have more flexibility about how they're going to reach climate goals because they're outside the EU regime. But on the other hand, more regulation is going to be necessary. And then another distinct point I'd like to make is um, the national food strategy was this um, report released just this last week. And one of the things that came out of the national food strategy, so I was involved as an advisory, as an advisory panel member, and I think one of the things that came across clearly from the business side of what should we be doing about food was the desire of food manufacturers to have clear guidelines about nutritional content of ready-made meals and different types of processed food and how that would be taxed. And what they're really looking for was what's the appropriate sugar, fat, and salt level in different types of food? And can government create some rules around if you want to hit an obesity target, if you want to hit a health target, can you just establish for us a rule for everyone? And then we can all make food according to whatever the health requirement is. But I think a complete lack of, you know, complete freewheeling, make whatever you want and put as much sugar into the cookie as you like. It's not actually something that business finds desirable because they feel pressure from their consumers to improve the quality in terms of, of nutrition of, of lots of different foods given to children, sausages, everything. And if the government said, well, if you have more than X percent of salt, we're going to start taxing the salt, or if you have more than X percent of fat. So there's a sense in which in some industries, government act or business wants some clearly defined regulations and standards so that they can do their future planning. And so it's not always the case that less is more, it might just be better or more clear or more flexible um, regulation. Well, I have to say, I was slightly perplexed by this title of national food strategy when the government seemed to come out and reject most of its key recommendations. I mean, I'm not sure what makes it the national food strategy, but it's a very interesting piece of work, actually, I thought. Uh, and well worth reading. But we've got a question here from a guy called John Springford, which I'm going to put to you, uh, Jonathan, in the first instance, but if others want to come in, they can. Uh, do you think it's likely that the EU workers who left the UK during the pandemic will come back? And what will be the economic effects if they don't? Nice, easy one. Oh, this is, really, uh, this is really hard uh, to predict, I think. Um, and I think, you know, the first thing to say is that the majority of them probably um, have got the right to come back despite the new post-Brexit immigration system, because I would imagine that the majority of them, certainly the majority of them who had been here for any length of time and entertained the possibility that they might come back, will have applied for settled or pre-settled status. And so they are likely to be able to come back. Will they come back? Um, uh, I was more optimistic about this a few months ago when it looked like our recovery was going to be significantly in advance of EU, other EU countries because we were so far ahead on the vaccination program. We seem to have thrown away that first mover advantage to some extent. And while I don't think that's, a, a, you know, in sort of macro terms over the long term, I don't think that's a, such a big deal. You know, a few weeks, months, one way or the other isn't going to change things that much. It may make it less likely that people come back because 
they uh, 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 um, you know were not doing as much better than other European countries as we might have hoped. But nonetheless, you know, hospitality is now completely open. We are seeing these labor shortages emerge. Um, and I would guess that quite a lot of people will come back, um, but some of them certainly won't. So assuming that a significant proportion don't come back, um, what are the medium to long-term effects? And as I, I said, I'm writing something about this now, but just because you see headlines saying that wages are going up by 10 or 15% or whatever, don't believe them. We actually had the same headlines in 2017 and 18. I looked back and it never actually showed up in the real data. Um, in any case, um, what we're seeing now doesn't give you much of a guide for the medium to long term. So the question is, suppose there is a significant reduction both in the stock and the future flow of EU workers, what does that do to the affected sectors? Well, first of all, it depends what happens on the labor demand side as well as the labor supply side. It's possible that this will in large part be offset by the fact that we, if we are indeed all, those of us who work in central London and other city centers working from home a lot more, but actually the demand for many of these customers facing service jobs, people who work in coffee bars and the like will go down as well. Um, so that's the first question. How, does, how do the relative movements of supply and demand stack up? But let's assume hypothetically, as seems plausible, if not certain, that labor supply falls by more than labor demand. Well, in that case, the economy and those sectors will have to adjust. How will they adjust? It will be a mixture of things. Um, higher wages, higher employment for British-born workers, lower output, that is to say few bit, fewer businesses in this sector, um, higher prices, um, and perhaps higher productivity. So there are lots of ways the economy can adjust. In my view, the evidence we have suggests pretty strongly what won't happen is more jobs for British workers. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that the EU workers displaced British workers in the first place. So I don't think their absence will lead to a growth in the number of British workers. Um, higher wages, um, the evidence suggests that that will show up but not very much. There may be some rise in wages, but it's not going to be 15 or 20 percent. It will be relatively small. Um, that in turn means higher prices. Um, so what you have is not a rise in wages overall, but a change in relative wages, slightly higher real wages for people who work in the affected sectors, particularly hospitality, slightly lower wages for the rest of us. Um, Higher productivity, again, seems unlikely. If anything, uh, the evidence suggests that immigration is good for productivity, that higher immigration over the last 20 years has boosted productivity a bit in the relevant sectors and areas. So I think that's implausible. Lower profits, well, some, I think that's in this sector, which is a low margin uh, sector on the whole. Uh, I think that's pretty unlikely. So the best guess here, but it is very much a guess at the moment, we really don't have any data at all. And even if we did, it would be some months, if not years, before we could make a judgment of the effect. The best guess is we'll see some balance of um, lower output, that is to say just fewer businesses uh, in this sector, combined with slightly higher relative real wages and slightly higher consumer prices overall. Does anyone else want to come in on, the, on this? Uh, can I just ask, I mean, a couple of follow-ups, I suppose, then, which I'll address to you in the first instance, Jonathan. So what would you say to someone who says, 
you see fewer fewer EU workers means higher wages for less well-paid UK workers? Um, well, um, it's possible in the same way that more EU workers led to very slightly lower wages for UK workers in the past. But the magnitudes, you know, the best estimates we have suggest that EU immigration over a period of a decade um, might have reduced wages for low-paid British service sector workers by perhaps 1% over a decade, 0.1% off pay increases for a year. So there's an effect there, but it's it's trivial um, and it's very small compared to other things which affect people's take-home pay, um, such as the level of the national minimum wage, such as the, the support provided through the tax credit and universal credit system um, and other things going on. Um, so it's possible, uh, um, but uh, but if it is consistent with previous experience, it's going to be pretty small. Um, the second point, um, and the more difficult one, is the extent to the extent that immigration, relatively liberal immigration policy, boosts output overall, boosts tax revenues, increases productivity in the economy overall. Any such gains may be offset by um, uh, 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 the more general negative impacts. Uh, of lower immigration. So even the low pay workers may not benefit on net, um, but those more indirect effects are, uh, while they may well be large, are, are harder to prove and quantify. So we have no, no certainty there. Okay, and just go on, Ben. Sorry. Sorry, yeah, Jonathan, just and, and pulling this together with the uh, overall inflation picture, because I know the Bank of England is looking at this very, very carefully. Would you anticipate that being a one-off uh, uh, impact on, on wages? And prices, or, or is there potential for it to to uh, to continue and roll on, and therefore perhaps force the Bank of England's hand in some way down the line? Um, uh, I think, I mean, uh, as you said, Ben, uh, um, and I agree. You know, all of this stuff's going on, both on the demand and supply side for labour and and for goods, is is sort of transitory, and it would be you know the bank's general inclination to sort of let's just keep calm and see what happens makes sense. So in the short, you know. Um, over the medium to long term, however, we have a new immigration system and that will change migration flows and that in turn will determine uh, uh, will that that is a long term structural change in the way the economy works and reacts to changes in demand and supply. And so it could just as the relative flexibility and openness to migration over the last 20 years meant that the bank probably could keep interest rates lower than it otherwise would have, um, it may be. That if those effects reverse, that the opposite will happen over the next 10 or 15 years. We're not there yet, but, uh, but we'll see. And this is an important point. You know, um, unless migration actually changes productivity, you know, the fact that migration has reduces wage increases doesn't mean that people lose out because it's the downward pressure for migration is on nominal wages, not on real wages. In other words, Yes, it puts downward pressure on wages, but that just means that, uh, 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 that inflation is lower and the bank can keep interest rates lower for longer. Um, over time, if um, wage inflation leads to higher inflation, the bank will put up interest rates um, and, uh, 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 and hence higher nominal wages won't translate into higher real wages. Okay, this is where I'm starting to get lost, but uh, we'll, we'll move on. Well, I mean, it is an important point. The basic point is, you know, uh, um, unless you are, you know, the fact that there's a labor shortage because there's no migrants um, and wages go up 
yeah. doesn't mean we're producing anything more per capita than we did before. Yeah. Um, so what happens? Not yes, you get higher nominal wages, but you also get higher inflation. Mm -hmm. um, and so you don't get higher real wages. We're not better off, at least in aggregate, than we otherwise okay. would have been with lower migration. So just because you see some migration-induced wage or lack of migration-induced wage increases, it doesn't automatically follow workers are better off. They might be, but it certainly doesn't not automatically the case. And ju just to be clear, is it, un is it unambiguously clear why we're having labour shortages? Is it Brexit? Is it COVID? Is there a mixture of both? Are we not really certain? I mean, does anyone have the answer to that? I mean, what, what's the cause of this? Um, well, I mean, as I said, I mean, I think it's sort of, um, it, you know, in, in some sense, it, it's obvious that if you shut down a large sector of the economy, which is very highly dependent, which also happens to be a sector that's quite dependent on, on workers who are both flexible and often from abroad, you shut that down. Um, some of them either leave the country or even if they stay in the country, move into other sectors that haven't been so adversely affected. And then you open it up again. Um, and, and those workers are now in different places, either physically in different places or in different sectors, you're going to get quite significant mismatches in the short term. I mean, I think it's, it's probably mostly as simple as that. In other sectors like the HGV driver sector, then it's much more complicated and it's a, a sort of perfect storm of a lot of things licensing, license, you know, self-employment, all the rest of it have, have combined. But, but in the sort of general hospitality temple, I think it is simply as where well, you just hit both the demand and supply for labor with big shocks in both directions. And, and of course, nobody quite knows where they are. Okay, thank you. Uh, Meredith, I'm going to come to you uh, next, but just to give you a heads up, Gemma and Ben, because I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. Uh, I'm just sort of curious about whether we know where the UK stands comparatively in terms of the impact of COVID on the economy. Is it too soon to say? Is there any initial data that, you know, whether it's European countries or OECD countries? So I'm going to come to you with that in a sec. But just first, Meredith, there's a question from Mike Stoyanov who says that according to the ONS, I don't know whether this is true or not, but you can tell us, Exports to the EU have completely recovered while imports from the EU are very low, despite the fact that the checks aren't in place. I mean, A, is that the case? B, is that because of the sort of statistical issues you were talking about later? And C, if not, why? Um, so there's a characterization of the data. Exports have completely recovered. There's sort of a question <coughs> of what that means. So exports have bounced back since January according to the ONS, and that is dispatches from the UK to the EU have mm -hmm. bounced back up. We don't think they're at a level, or I don't think we've got any evidence that they're at a level they would have been if we didn't have these additional checks. Um, further, there's this issue of the, the on the EU side, they're reporting that the level is lower of imports coming into the EU from the UK that's the statistical anomaly, partially. It might also be because of the additional checks. On the import side, I think it's a bit of a puzzle why imports have been so low and why imports haven't bounced back as rapidly um, as the exports apparently bounced back after January. So I think we don't quite know what's going on there. 
presumably there's a little bit of hesitancy around all of the issues of getting stuff across the border. Everything from finding the drivers for the trucks to a little bit of a worry of if I ship something to the UK, is it going to get stuck somewhere? We haven't had these holdups on the border but I think there's a little bit more concern on the part of the EU. Plus there's also just the sense of if you're in the EU and you're looking for new customers, COVID may have cut a lot of your demand in terms of different customers may have canceled orders. So now if you're trying to rebuild your business and you're in France, if you have limited resources, are you going to try to rebuild your business in the direction of Italy or the Netherlands where it's really costless to trade, or are you going to try to rebuild by getting those customers back in the UK or developing new customers? And I think for some of these smaller exporters in the EU, there's still just that hesitancy about not fully understanding what the regulations are to export, not being able to find the driver to put it in the truck and take it. So it's just complicated. And when it's complicated, you might say, why bother? So I think that's, a, that's an issue as well. Okay, Gemma and Ben comparative can we say anything well i think on on the face of it we've done very badly <laughs> you know we've had one of the biggest drops in gdp uh, of any oecd country i think um, it's slightly exaggerated because of this issue of the uk's statisticians factor in uh, um, schools and hospitals output in a way that others don't which sort of down, uh, makes us look worse than than others and i think some of the talk earlier in the pandemic about us having the, the worst deaths and the worst economic hit is slightly exaggerated but I think there's no question that we've done pretty badly relative to a lot of countries um, I would add though that, I mean look you have to you have to wait and see to some extent places like New Zealand and like Australia have, have effectively fortified their economies and they've done pretty well both on in economic performance and in deaths but at some stage they're going to have to reopen so there is a recent argument that you know that you can't really uh, factor you can't really reach a judgment until it's all fully played out and in yeah. a similar way with various waves you know the infection we might have taken the hit early and if you think the infections drive economic performance then um, others might be have it have it still Still to come. I mean, for me, the big outlier, outlier is the US because they have had what looks like a very small hit to their economy, uh, you know, considering they had such low restrictions and had such a severe yeah. pandemic. I think that's one that uh, will be much analysed, uh, you know, going forward. Emma? Yeah, I don't have much um, to add to that. I suppose just one thing that makes it hard to sort of compare countries is the different structures of them. The UK is quite a densely populated small island, um, which when you think about the restrictions that are needed to control the spread of a disease, makes things a bit more difficult than if you're in parts of the uh, non-coastal parts of the US where people live very far apart from each other and perhaps didn't need the same kind of restrictions um, to achieve the lack of pandemic spread. But I, I agree with Ben, I think the US is a kind of it stands out as being, how can we explain this, given that um, they, they didn't lock down in the same way other countries did and seemed to have had a smaller uh, economic impact. And, and can we say anything useful about how this plays out in terms of variation, whether it's geographic or between sectors or between different sorts of people? Uh, who's been worst impacted by the economics of COVID? Where's been worst impacted by the economic impacts of COVID? Do we have data that can lead, give us some tentative answers on those sorts of questions now? 
Um, so I've, I've been looking a bit at the uh, furlough data recently. I mean, so I think the, the sort of general pattern uh, through all of COVID is that the cities have been harder hit in terms of economic activity and employment than uh, rural areas of the country. Mm-hmm. That remains true. It, it looks in the, the latest furlough data like that's a particularly London story. In mm-hmm. other parts of the country, furlough rates have fallen, even in cities, but actually furlough rates remain highest um, in London or in areas that commute into London. Um, that's unusual in most economic shocks where London tends, has tended to be more resilient. Um, so I think that's definitely one pattern that's played out. Um, other patterns, um, definitely it's been younger people who've been harder hit economically uh, than older people for various reasons. I mean, the most obvious mm-hmm. being that young people came out of school and university into a sort of non-existent labour market. So whilst furlough has helped those who already had a job, we've got an increasing group of young people who didn't have a job and therefore have been shut out from that. Anyone want to add anything to Meredith? So the, the other big gap is the gender gap and that women have been more adversely affected by the COVID recession than, for example, in the 2008 recession, it was actually men who took the biggest hit in terms of employment opportunities. This time around with women with children were homeschooling for several months and a lot of them had to take time off work or just stop working effectively. So there's been a bit, there's been a lot of information collected on that, that this has been a big setback for women's careers. Ben or Jonathan, do you want to, uh, sorry, Gemma. No, I'll let the others come in. I have one, one other thing. No, add it now because they weren't jumping. (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, the other thing um, Jonathan mentioned earlier about the big increase in savings rates that's happened in the UK, which is definitely true on aggregate, but that is very, um, very unequal experience of that with lower income households tending to find their costs of living have gone up during the pandemic and therefore they're struggling more financially whilst it's higher income households that have cut back on a lot of their discretionary spending and therefore saved a lot during this pandemic. Okay. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, this you know, uh, the, the phrase here, of course, is rather than V-shaped recovery, K-shaped recovery, which is basically that, uh, um, you know, people like us, um, you know, that is who can uh, can work remotely, um, have seen our incomes hold up extremely well um, while our spending has fallen because of restrictions and hence our saving has gone up by quite a lot. And we already tended, of course, to be uh, um, very much in the better off half of the population. Um, whereas the rest of the population is divided into two groups, those who um, had to carry on working and were able to, like people in you know, supermarkets, deliveries, and of course in, in uh, um, public services, um, and then those who couldn't carry on working because of restrictions like people in, in restaurants and, and, and so on, um, uh, both of whom have had a difficult time of it uh, um, uh, in, in, in different, both of those groups obviously had a difficult time of it in different ways. Um, and I think the, the question now is, you know, uh, um, how do we sort of redress some of those imbalances as we come out of the pandemic? And there, sadly, as, as Ben said, I mean, you have a government which has no, you know, um, while it does have, as Ben said, the traditional Chancellor Prime Minister arguments about spending, which of course is nothing new at all, beyond that it has no strategy um, uh, on microeconomics, on distribution, on, on levelling up uh, yet. Um, and so we are, we are 
blundering into the situation where the government has just refused to make even relatively modest uh, reforms to the sick pay system, which would have helped some of the people who've done worse out of the pandemic, um, and is proposing to take away, to, to cut 20 quid a week from universal credit. Ben? I have got really nothing much to add apart from to reiterate what Jonathan's saying, you know, policy coming out needs to recognise that this was a grossly unequal pandemic in its impacts. Mm. And policy has to lean against uh, that, that, uh, that impact, whether it's on tuition catch up, whether it's on what new taxes are in, new taxes are introduced, whether it's on issues like public sector pay. Um, you know, the, uh, the analysis is out there, the evidence base is out there for them to do that. The question is, are they going to do it, given the politics of it? OK, and just for a bit of fun to end with and to put you all on the spot, imagine it's now uh, October. We've invited you back to do another of these sessions and you've all said yes. What do you think you will be saying as your opening remark about the most striking economic development since we last met? I might even, if I remember, hold you against these things when we start off next time. Well, I would say, um, what happened to the great inflation scare? I would say it was temporary. And we'll look back at comments of people like Andy Haldane <laughs> about inflation being a tiger, which is about to tear our throat out. Those, those comments, I suspect, might look a bit quaint by then. So you'll say you were right last time we met? <laughs> okay. I think so. <laughs> Anyone else? What do, you, what do you predict you will be saying is the biggest single thing that we should have noted, we should be noting next time we meet? Meredith. So I'll just say, I think there's still a lot of uncertainty there, or there's a certain amount of uncertainty about the recovery with regard to the case rate and how much people are forced to self-isolate and how many people have to stay home from work because they've mm -hmm. been exposed. And so I think that's still a risk. There's also sort of more globally, this question of how are the variants going to spread around the world? And so I think in Asia, this has been particularly concerning because the vaccine rollout in Korea, Japan has been very slow and they're big trading partners actually. So I think one of the things I'll be wondering about is either the, the V-shaped recovery started to shift into more of an L because of variants and continued um, restrictions on people working or everything went the way we hoped it was going to go and we've got an even sharper V. Um, so I think, you know, three months ago or maybe six months ago, Jonathan was saying, I'm going to, we're going to have a V-shaped recovery. And I said, I'm much more worried it's going to be L-shaped where the, the bounce back on the V is going to be a lot softer. And so I think I'm very happy that he's been right because <laughs> um, it's better for all of us. But I still have this concern that variants can push us into more of an L-shape and this could slow things down either really here or through slowdowns in our, some of our big partners around the world. Nicely hedged. Uh, Gemma, Jonathan? Happy to go next. Um, I think if we're talking in October, we will then be past the end of a lot of the government support programmes with furlough and some of the business loan schemes. So I think probably the new thing, although perhaps it probably won't be showing up in the data by October, um, but might be in the anecdotes, will be the sort of bit of a shakeout of the economy with more job losses and more businesses um, going under that have perhaps been propped up for the last year or so. So I think that might be the, the new point for discussion. Quite how much it'll be, I, I don't know, but I think that might be our, our topic for discussion is how's the economy doing post all the sport. Brilliant. Jonathan? Um I, I agree with uh, with with all of those. Um, 
Um, I wonder, you know, it'd be very interesting to see. I'm not necessarily making a prediction here, but I wonder whether the, the end of the furlough scheme won't actually be something of a whimper when we discover that actually those people who are still on furlough um, actually don't really exist um, in the sense that we think that most of them have either found other jobs or have left the country entirely. I suspect that, you know, and I'm not criticizing the Treasury or HMRC for this, that actually there has been quite a lot of... Uh, um, some outright fraud, some abuse, some people a bit taking the mick, and, and some people who, you know, where, where, where it's just for various admin reasons uh, uh, um, run on. So I think um, we will be asking those questions, but I'm slightly more sanguine than Jenna about how it will work out. Brilliant. I'm going to take all your responses as meaning that you will come back in October and November <laughs> and do this again. So thank you in advance. Thank you as ever. I thought that was fascinating. Thank you all for watching. I'm going to end on a slightly melancholy note just to say that Martha Clark, who organises these events, this is the last event that she'll be organising for us because she's moving on to Pastures New. So I just wanted to end by thanking her for these things being seamless and so well organised and she'll be sadly missed. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves and we'll see you again soon. Thank you all very much indeed.